I just wonder if maybe some of you here this morning are experiencing what I call vertigo spirituality. You're just spinning around and round and round in life. You're not really going anywhere, not really accomplishing anything. And at the end of the day, you just really feel empty and sick inside because you're not really fulfilling anything. You, you're a follower of Christ. You, you, you love Jesus, but you're just not accomplishing anything of significance. Our lives should count for something. They should accomplish something that outlives us. So the question is, do you want vertigo spirituality or do you want victory? That's the question this morning. Our lives should be characterized by meaning and purpose, and that's what God wants for us. So what is the purpose of your life? What are you living for? Something that outlives you, a legacy that you leave beyond. What we're going to see today is yet another example of how Nehemiah surrendered to God's purpose for his life, and in that found the great purpose in life. We've already learned that the story of Nehemiah teaches us the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. Through that, God teaches us how he wants to build our lives, his church, and his kingdom. The building of your life, the kingdom of God, that is where you find true meaning and purpose in life. If you want purpose, if you want something beyond a vertigo spirituality, you find it in building God's kingdom. The last time we met together, we talked about where they were in the process of building the wall. Nehemiah, he was a layman, cupbearer to the king. He gets news one day that after the exile, the Israelites had returned to the nation of Israel, to Jerusalem. They had returned to their land. They found that the walls had been torn down and were still in that condition. The gates were a rubble pile. They were burned. The walls speak of separation, distinction. The gates speak of authority and power. So there's no separation. There's no authority in their lives. There's no distinction between the nation of Israel and the rest of the world. The glory of God is in reproach. Years pass by, nearly 70 years pass by, 70 years of exile, almost another 70 years of working on the city. The temple gets rebuilt, but the walls and the gates are still in the same condition. Nehemiah hears about this, and it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart because of the condition of his people, but most of all because the glory of God's in reproach. God gives him a burden. He waits. He prays. He gets permission. He goes back. He surveys the land. He begins the work, faces opposition. And then last week we saw they get halfway done and they face discouragement. They have to learn to defeat discouragement. You see, the nation of Israel had been spinning around and round and round. Finally, they get to work. Then they face opposition. They have to learn to overcome discouragement to get there. And when we pick up this week, before we get into the chapter we are at today, if you go from chapter 4, they learn to defeat discouragement. You move to chapter 5, they face yet another obstacle. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time in chapter 5 today, but what happens is there is internal struggle that goes on. You see, sometimes Satan attacks us from the outside, the church from the outside. Sometimes he attacks from the inside out. That's one of his favorite things to do because what happens is, is when Satan attacks the church from the outside in, typically the church is strengthened. We come together to face that opposing force. But when the church is attacked from the inside out, 
It's harder to overcome, and division occurs, dissension occurs, and that's a difficult thing to overcome. So that's one of his favorite weapons. What happens in chapter 5 is that there are strong leaders who begin to take advantage and abuse weaker people in the community. And Nehemiah hears about this, and he confronts these leaders, and he says, okay, you guys have to stop. Stop abusing the weak people. In chapter 5, we see Nehemiah share with them verbally what they need to do, but also we see him lead in a sacrificial way, showing them how to lead, showing them what to do. And then we move to chapter 6. The work continues. When we come to chapter 6, after 52 days, we see that the wall is complete. In 52 days, the wall is finished. But there's still one thing that's left to be done. There's one thing that's undone. The gates have not been put in place. The doors of the gates have not been put into place. So the enemy does one final push to attempt to stop the works before they, the work on the wall before it's completely done. Look at verses 1 through 4. We see in this chapter that we need purpose and we need to discover how to attain it in order to, to continue the work that God has given us. Verse 1, now when it was reported to send ballot to buy, to Geshem, there's our three friends, our, our, our enemies that continue to pop up over and over again. Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Then Samballat and Geshem sent a message to me say, saying, Come, let us meet together at Chephirim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me, so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them. Each time, he says, I answered them the same way. Three things that you and I need to do to have purpose in life. Number one is this. Purpose for life is found in Jesus Christ and his great work. If you want purpose, that's where you find it, in Jesus Christ and his great work. The enemy is still trying to stop God's work. One final push, again, verse 3. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come to you? Come down to you. That phrase, great work, is important. What is the great work? Well, the great work, life's great work, is God's great work. I mean, our life should be, our life's work should be the great work of God. Other things can be important in life, but this has to be number one in the center. God's great work, our lives should revolve around accomplishing his great work. Nehemiah identified God's great work. Why should I come down? He says, why should the work, the great work stop while I come down and meet with you? I'm not going to stop what I'm doing. He identified the great work and he's not going to stop doing it. So what's wrapped up in this great work? Well, it begins at salvation. I mean, the, the great work of God was that, hey, he created man, we sinned, and he loved us enough to send Jesus to die for us so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be bought back, so that we could be saved. The great work of salvation begins with Jesus Dying on the cross to forgive us of our sins. Being raised from the dead so that we can have victory over death. That's the message of salvation. And that's the great work is wrapped up. It begins and is wrapped up in the message of salvation. So that's his great work. What's my great work? Well, my great work, my life's work has to become that great work. The 
purpose of life is to know Jesus and to make him known. My great work should be helping others to know Jesus and to make him known, helping them to know him and grow in him, knowing Jesus and growing in him and helping others know Jesus and grow in him. What's that called? Well, that's the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is comprised of four different things. To know Jesus, to grow in Jesus, to help others know Jesus, and to help others grow in Jesus. You want to know what the Great Commission is? There you go. Go and make disciples. We know Jesus. We are growing in Christ. We are disciples ourselves. And then we are in the process as we're going, we're making disciples and helping them to know him, to grow in him. The great work. That's why we have missionaries all over the world. My brother and sister-in-law are overseas on the mission field. That's why we have a team coming back from Nepal today. They've been doing the great work. That's why we meet needs as a church in this community. And that's why we're going to do ministries that meet needs. The purpose of which is to introduce them to the love of Jesus so that they can know him. And then we want to connect them to the church so that we can help them grow in Christ. Knowing Christ and growing in Christ. And here's the thing. God's not asking you to do something that he's not willing to do himself. The deal is, is that you surrender to him and then he works through you to build his kingdom and to accomplish these purposes. He's not sending you out on an island by yourself to do it in your own strength. He's asking you to participate in what he's already doing. He wants to work in you and then work through you. It's the process of sanctification. As we become like Christ, we lead others to Christ. We shine his light and share his love to the world around us. But we do have a responsibility. Nehemiah, look at that phrase. Nehemiah says, I am doing. There's a responsibility there. I mean, yes, we surrender to God. And hey, if you're doing it by yourself, you're, you're never going to be enough to do it by yourself. Okay, it's, it's his power, his strength that we build his kingdom with. It has to be him. But we do have a responsibility in it. We have to own that responsibility. We've got to be willing to do our part. God wants us to invest in the kingdom work. It's his power, his strength, but we have a responsibility. And then he says, I can't come down. Now, that, that's interesting because physically he could come down, right? But he say, no, I won't come down. I could, but I'm not going to. What I'm doing here is too important. Here's what Nehemiah is doing, okay? And this is something that we all need to do. It's easy for us to sit in here on Sunday morning and say, yeah, we need to do that. Amen. But then we get out during the week and it's a little more challenging. Here's what Nehemiah is doing. He's drawing a line in the sand and he's saying this work, this great work of serving the Lord, it is too valuable, too important. My allegiance is to Christ, to, to God and God alone. And I will not cross this line. I will not come down off the wall and compromise and, and allow my allegiance to be given to anything or anyone else. That's it. That's, that's what he's saying. I could come down, but I'm not going to. What I'm doing is too valuable. It's too important. So the question is this. Are you like Nehemiah? Or have you crossed that line of compromise into the culture, and now your allegiance is not just to Christ and Christ alone, but is to something else? The line in the sand. He says, I can't come down. I, I, what I'm doing is too valuable. The cost is too great. It's too important. And then that word down, that's important because anything, anything that distracts us or pulls us off the wall that causes us to stop the work that God's called us to do is a step down. 
Anything other than building our church the way God wants, building disciples, building my family the way God wants, building the kingdom of God, anything that distracts me from that is a step down. It's not what God intends. And so what we do, even the good things in life have to be analyzed against the great work that God's called us to do. Nehemiah says, I can't come down, never. I will not give my allegiance to anyone but to God. For us, we have to make the same commitment. Are we willing to stick with it? The Southern Baptist Convention is comprised of over 47,000 churches. And connected to that are a lot of different organizations. One of those organizations is Lifeway. Y'all know Lifeway, right? You've probably been to Lifeway. They sell books. They sell Sunday school material. They do all kinds of things. And that's what we think of when we think of Lifeway, right? Sunday school books or other books. But Lifeway also has a research department. And a few years back, they did some research asking Americans how they perceive and pursue spirituality in their lives. Great conversation starter, by the way, to share the gospel. But they, they asked they ask Americans this question, and here are some of the things that they found. USA Today picked this up. Some other national publications picked this up. They found that three of four Americans agree that there's an ultimate plan and purpose for life. That's amazing. They have no clue what it is, but they agree that, that there's an ultimate plan, that, that life isn't just this random series of, of events. There's a plan. There's a purpose. And the reason is because, hear this, the reason is because God, the Word tells us this, God has set eternity in the hearts of man. There is a longing in each and every human being, whether they believe in God or not, there's a longing to know our Creator. That's why we believe there's a purpose, there's a design to it all. It's not just random. Eight of ten Americans, here, listen to this, eight of ten Americans agree that it is more important to pursue a higher purpose and meaning in life. Again, they may not know what that is, but they say, yeah, you should be pursuing something that's a higher calling, a higher purpose in your life. Two-thirds of Americans agree that finding a deeper purpose is a major priority in their life. They may not have found it yet, but they want to know. A more recent study done by a secular organization, goldcast.com. The study, the article was titled 10 Benefits of Knowing Your Purpose in Life. Some of the benefits they said was that it gives you passion, it gives you clarity, it gives you direction. But you know, I read through the article and you know, usually there are those comments at the bottom of the article. Y'all ever read those? Depending on the article, it's a good or bad idea. You know, you never know what you're going to get. But this was fascinating. I read the article, all these benefits they say of having a purpose and when I got down to the end, one of the, the phrases, one of the comments was simply this. I just wish I knew why. Why what? Well, why I'm here. It was just, hey, I agree, but what's my purpose? Another comment said, how do you do this? How do you find your purpose in life? Folks, the culture is begging for meaning, for an answer to the question, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? The culture knows we are created with a desire to know our purpose, to know our creator. And those of us inside the church, whether we recognize it or not, the people around us that are lost are begging for the answer that we have. They want to know, why am I here? What's the meaning of it all? What's my purpose in life? 
The purpose in life is to know Jesus, to grow in Him, and to make Him known. Now, there are a lot of different ways that applies to a lot of different people in terms of your specific purpose, but we have the answer. Our culture is consumed with that question. Nehemiah found meaning and he found purpose. And if you're going to find meaning and purpose in your life, here's step number one. you got to give up on yourself. Now, you say, wait a minute. (laughs) That sounds crazy, right? Because all we've talked about is, hey, don't ever quit. Don't stop buildings. Don't stop working. And there is truth to that. There is sense, a sense to where we never give up. But that's after you found the purpose of life. In order to find the purpose in life, you've got to give up on yourself. It's not about you. I have to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I have to give up on my way of doing things and doing it in my strength and recognize that apart from Christ, I am nothing. That's the first step. I can't do it without him. If you're trying, if you depend on yourself more than you depend on God to find purpose, guess what? You will fall into that category of why am I here? Because you'll never find it. You'll never find your purpose unless you submit first, give up on yourself and your strength and depend on God completely. Total submission is the first step. You know, if you were to do an internet search for like, and I've done this before, uh, uh, something about uh, life's work or accomplishments, great achievements, just in a general sense, you'd find a lot of different things. I mean, you're going to find a lot of different exam- examples of people who did things, and that's, that's what they're known for. You might find, uh, I don't know, an architect that, that built a bridge or an author that wrote a book, a painter that painted a painting a homemaker that raised their family, uh, somebody who, an artist that, that, that painted a painting or, or, or so on and so forth. It's that, that the, where your passions and your goals and your dreams intersect and at the end of your life, somebody says they were known for blank. They did this. It's that it that you accomplished with your life. And hey, all of those things I listed are great. They're wonderful things. But that, if that's all your life is about, it, it's not enough. It's not enough. Wonderful things. But our life has to be centered. Life's purpose is found in Jesus Christ and knowing Christ and growing in Him and then helping others to know Christ and to grow in Him. We have to have purpose. What have you given your life to? What's your meaning? What drives you? What's your purpose? Nehemiah says, I am going to do the great work of God. God's work. His plan. Number two. Our enemy is relentless in attacking God's great work. Relentless. You see a common theme in these first few chapters. On into chapter 6, the enemy is relentless. I mean, they they keep coming. They come and they come and they come. They're not giving up. Verses 1 and 2. Go back to verses 1 and 2. It was reported to Samballat, Tobiah, to Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I'd rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it. But aha, they found, although at that time, I had not set up the doors and the gates, so there's still a chance. There's still a weak point. The enemy wants to attack, and Satan attacks all through life. Listen, I, I don't want to you know, depress you this morning, but as long as you live, Satan's going to attack you. As long as you're in this world, until Jesus comes back or until he takes you home, you're in spiritual warfare. That's just life. But you have to be ready. We have to be prepared, as just as Nehemiah was. What we see here is that last line. The gates 
were still not complete. There were still gaps in the walls. And folks, I'm going to tell you, it's the gaps that'll get you. It's those openings, those weak points in your life. You got to reinforce the gaps. Because if you don't, that's exactly where Satan's going to attack. He knows your weaknesses, whether you do or not. Use the analogy of a boxer. What does a boxer do to prepare for a fight? Well, he studies his opponents to look for weak points. Study hours and hours of video to look for those weak areas. Any sports team, really. Football coaches look at hours and hours of film looking for weak areas to attack. They learn those weak areas. Satan knows your weak points, and he's going to attack you in those gaps, those weak areas. So we have to submit those to the Lord. God has to have control of the gaps in your life. We've got to surrender to the Lord and in his strength fortify those gaps. Look at verse 2 again. Samballad and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Chepharim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. Hey, let's just get together. These are the enemies. Can't we all just get along? Let's just meet together. We'll have peace and love and everything will be great. That's the invitation. Now, why are they inviting him out? There's a lot of theories. But we know that Nehemiah said they meant to do me harm. So there's a theory that maybe they were going to assassinate him. They were going to lure him out there and kill him. Possible. Maybe they just wanted him to come out there so that with the, in the absence of his leadership, they could attack the city while there were still gaps. You know, so if Nehemiah's not there, you kind of cut off the head and then, you know, you get the idea. And maybe, hey, maybe they're just desperate and they're saying, hey, we've got to stop this before they get done. So, Nehemiah, once you come down for a few minutes, come meet us so the work will stop. We don't know, but here's what we do know, all right? We know that this was an invitation to compromise. Hey, just, just come down off the wall, stop the work for a few minutes, and come talk to us. Let's, let's see if we can't work something out. Or remember, these folks do not want Israel to come back and to, to be an opposing force in the area. And so they're, at this point, they're trying anything they can think of to get the work to stop. And that's exactly what Satan does today. Hey, listen, go to church, applaud what's going on, say a few amens, but then the rest of the week, come on out to the plains of Ono. 25 miles outside of Jerusalem, by the way, out in the middle of nowhere. But that's Satan's invitation. Hey, you come on out here with me and meet with me the rest of the week. Go to church, do the Jesus thing, but then the rest of the week, you come on out to the plains of Ono, into the world of compromise, into the culture, into carnality, and you just live the way you want to. It's okay. We can all just get together. We can all get along. And sometimes that's just not the way it works. Satan's trying to get him to compromise. Nehemiah's enemies are saying, hey, come join us. Because compromise is this. Compromise occurs when a believer wants acceptance and advancement in the culture instead of pleasing Christ. Compromise happens when I want acceptance more than I want to please God, to serve Him with my life. Well, there's no distinguishing between, we've seen, we've talked about the statistics, no distinguishing between followers of Christ in the world and the way that we live. No distinguishing between those who claim to know Christ and the atheist and how we live. That's what Satan wants. Get, on, get down off the wall. Just stop working for a little bit. You deserve a break. We are in this world, the Bible says, but we are not to be of the world. We are to go into the world to advance the gospel, but we are not to have the world in us. 
We're not to live like the world. We're to be in it, but separate. There should be a distinction. Remember, the walls, distinction, separation, the gates, authority, and power. There's supposed to be distinction in our lives. And Nehemiah's response in verse 4, they sent me the message four times. The enemy's not going to stop, so what does Nehemiah say? He says, they sent me the message four times. What did he do? I answered them the same way each time. He's not coming down. I'm not going to stop, he says. And if you read ahead in verses 5 through 9, you see the enemy tries a couple of, of interesting tactics. Deception, discouragement, fear. That's their, their tactics, lies. First, they send a letter that basically is just lies about Nehemiah slandering him. The goal is, hey, if the people will believe this, maybe they'll reject him as their leader. Thankfully, they don't fall for it. So they move on to the second thing. In verses 10 through 14, you see that, that they, this prophet, this false prophet shows up and says, Hey, Nehemiah, God told me that you're going to die. So you need to run and hide. Can I just be honest with you for a minute? I'm always weary when people say, Hey, God told me to tell you something. Because here's the deal. That may be true, but if it is true, he's going to tell me the same thing. God's big enough that he can confirm it in both of our hearts. And he will, if it's his will, he'll confirm it in both of our hearts. But Nehemiah recognizes it for what it is. He knows this guy's not for real, that, that this isn't a real message from God. So he rejects it and he ignores him and he continues on. But the enemy is relentless. Now, how was he able to do that? How was he able to continue to, to stand bold against these attacks? discouragement, deception, fear. I mean, they're pretty conniving. Well, verse 9 tells us, For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. But here's the key. But now, O oh God, he says, strengthen my hands. How does he continue to reject these attacks, to defend himself and the people against these attacks? He says, God, give me strength. Strengthen my hands. I'm going to fall if I do it on my own, so God, strengthen me. For us in the New Testament church, here's how it works. Here's how we strengthen our hands. James 4, 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit. I'm giving my life to you. We talked about this. I'm giving up on myself. Lord, my life is yours. You're in control. Your power, your strength. You, you call the shots, and I will do what you tell me to do. So I've submitted completely to God. It's his power, his strength, not my own. Then we resist the devil. That's a military term. It basically just means to oppose Satan. This is spiritual warfare. We've already got God's power and strength. And by opposing him, what's the result? Number three, the devil flees from us. That's victory in Jesus. And it's only in Christ. We submit to Christ. In his power, we resist Satan. And then God gives us the victory. We already have the victory in Christ. The question is, are you living in victory? Are you still living in vertigo? We need victory in Jesus. The third stop today. Have faith because God always finishes what he starts. If you want strength for today and tomorrow and beyond, you have to have faith and know that God always, God is a finisher. He finishes what he starts. Look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 6. So the wall was completed. It was finished on the 20th day, the 25th day, rather, of the month of Elul in 52 days. Again, amazing. 52 days, it's finished. When all of our enemies heard of it and the nations surrounding us saw it, us, they lost their confidence. Now, this is important. 
I'm going to read that again. When the, all of the enemies heard of it, the wall's finished, 52 days, everything's done, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. They had tried and tried and tried, but God's work was, God finished what he started, and what happened? They lost their confidence. For they recognized, why did they lose their confidence? That this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Go back to the beginning. How did Nehemiah convince the people? He said, listen, this is what God has already done. God's hand is in this. They believed. They said, let us arise and build. They faced some obstacles, but God's hand was in it. And now they have victory because why? God's hand was in it. Remember, if you want to accomplish God's great work, your life has to be in His hand, and His hand has to be in what you're doing. And this was the case. Finished. Man, that's a great word, isn't it? Don't you like finishing things? When we are faithful to God's work, He will complete the work that He started in us. Even the enemy of God, when it, and then when it's done, this is the great part, when it's done, even God's enemies have to say, well, God must have been in that. That's what happens here. That's exactly what happens here. There was a news article from a few years back, 2012. The LGBT community was going to uh, protest at a church in North Carolina. Fire Church was the name of it because they had a columnist in their church, a conservative columnist, Dr. Michael Brown, who, who had done a lot of work and spoke out about the truth of God's word in opposition to that lifestyle. And so they were going to come protest this church. And, and in response, Dr. Brown, he said, listen, you know, uh, we, we do oppose you. But he, he wrote, he found out they were going to protest on Facebook. And he wrote an article, a blog. He said, listen, you guys are welcome to come and protest. And you will be met, although we don't agree with you, you will be met with nothing but love and, and, and welcoming and be invited into our church family if you come and protest. The pastor, Scott Volk, posted this on, on his blog. He said, as the pastor of Fire Church, I just want you to, to know that you will be greeted with the same love and compassion as we always endeavor to show anyone. You're more than welcome to come, protest whatever. He says, you make mention of the hate, yet in all of our years, we've only desired to reach out to our community in love. After all of this happened, he began to receive hate mail. And in response, he invited anybody that was going to protest over to his house for dinner. He said, y'all just come on over. If y'all want to know me really, then come over and I'll, I'll serve you dinner and we'll get to know each other. Well, on every, when everything was said and done, in the middle of August, Sunday, August the 26th, time for the protesters to show up. After all of this, only 10 people showed up. They said they were disappointed that they only had 10 show up to protest at their church. Here's what the church did. Now listen, don't misunderstand. They never once said they agreed with the lifestyle. They stuck to the truth of God's word as it relates to this. But when the protesters showed up, the members of the church went outside and took them in the middle of August, North Carolina. They went outside. They took them water. They took them snacks. And after a few minutes, the protesters left and said, these folks are just too nice. We can't protest them anymore. It's just not right. After it was all said and done, again, now these, this church is known for its stance against this lifestyle, homosexuality. After it was all said and done, here's what one of the protesters said. One of the leaders said, I want to hear more about this Jesus. Another of the protesters said, even, if, even 
I would be welcome there? You mean to tell me I would be welcome at this church? It would be an honor, he said, to meet Scott Volk and Dr. Brown. And here it is. I'm beginning to see, he said, that light is very attractive. They didn't agree with them, but they didn't just beat them over the head either. They loved on them. Shared the truth, but they did it in love. The love of Jesus flowing out of spirit-filled godly hearts makes an impact in people's lives. We don't compromise. We don't get off the wall. But we love people. And we share the love of Jesus. And when they see God completing work and doing what He says He's going to do, when they see God working in the lives and the hearts of His people, it cannot be denied. You have to say, hey, hey, we may want you to fail. We don't like the church. We don't like Christians. But I got to admit, something's going on over there. God's doing something. That's what happens when God's people trust Him to do what He says, stay faithful, and God finishes what He starts. Jesus said, it is finished. I'm the Alpha and Omega, He says, the beginning and the end. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. He'll do it. Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful and carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And Paul, at the end of his life, he says, I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. How did he do that? Because He did it in the power of Christ, and he lived in submission to Jesus Christ. I've kept the faith, he says. My salvation, if you're saved, your salvation is totally complete in Christ, okay? Your salvation is finished. My being made into a disciple of Christ is not finished, but one day it will be. The work of building the kingdom of God is not yet finished, but one day it will be finished. Because God finishes what he starts. He's a finisher. And he's promised to begin to finish it. Finish what he began. You know, I'm a list guy. You know, I'm not naturally an organized person. I had to learn to be organized. And one of the things that, that helped me do that was I learned I needed to create lists. If you, were to, if you were to look at my iPad and open it, I have like 20 different lists, okay? But I'm a list guy. I've got one for personal things that I need to do. I've got one for church. I've got... Uh, ministry ideas. I've got long-term goal lists that I have. I've got a grocery list for when Mandy sends me to the grocery store. I've got a house list of things that need to be done around the house, you know, projects that are ongoing. I'm a list guy. If it doesn't go on my list, it's not going to get done. But you know, one of the things that I love, and this is just my own little version of OCD, I love that's one of the things, the electronic version doesn't quite give you this satisfaction of, of Drawing a line through it, right? I mean, there's something so satisfying about checking that, even with the iPad, just pushing that little circle, seeing that little check mark. I mean, there's something satisfying about that, right? I'm a list guy. I love marking things off my list. When Jesus Christ stepped out of the grave, everything on his list was checked off. He finished it. Salvation is complete. Even the work that we don't see finished is finished in Christ because he sees the future. And he is the future. It's all finished. Jesus finishes what he starts. Now I'm going to try to illustrate this life's work that we're called here to. That Jesus says, I will finish. 
Here we got the pumpkin patch coming up next Saturday. By the way, there's a sign-up sheet in the foyer, and I think it still needs a lot of names, so if you want to participate, we, we need help. But we got the pumpkin patch coming up. And when you go to the pumpkin patch, what do you do? You search and search and search to find the perfect pumpkin. And if you have as many kids like I do, some of you I know have more, that takes quite a while. All right, you got to find the perfect one. It's got to be the right shape. One year, I got the worst looking one I could find just to prove a point with my kids. But you find the perfect one. It's got to be the right size. This one doesn't have a great stem, but you want a good stem. You know, you want it to look good, right? You choose that pumpkin, you take it home, and then what do you do? You carve it. You open it up, and then you get to pull out all the goo, right? You stick your hand down in there, and all the slime and the goo, and you smell like pumpkin for three days afterwards. You, you pull out all of the mess, and then you carve your pumpkin. You put some sort of face on there, right? And then, once everything's said and done, you take a candle, and you put a light in it, and you stick it on your front porch so all your neighbors, who could probably care less, can see what you did. You want everybody to see your work of art, don't you? you? Yeah, you worked hard. You got all that mess all over the place. Now you want everybody to see. Well, you know, that's a great illustration of what Christ does with us. You know, he chose us. He created us. We sinned. Then he went and he bought us back. He paid for us again. And he took us. And then he brings us home. And he goes to work on us. He opens us up, and then he pulls out all the mess. Anybody want to take this home with him? <laughs> Pull out all the mess, all this stuff, and I'm not even going to open it up because there's no telling what it smells like now. But all that goo, all that, that nastiness inside of us, sin, evil, all of that, he takes it and he pulls it out. He removes all of that from our lives, and then he goes to work on us, carving us. And that's where things get a little tricky, right? The Holy Spirit goes in and he just starts to work on us. And sometimes that hurts, doesn't it? Getting, hey man, we're forgiven, we're set free, but there's still a lot of work to be done. But he goes to work on us. And thankfully, he's going to keep working. He who began a good work will be faithful. He's going to keep working, but he goes to work and he starts carving us. And so first, he removes all of the junk and then he gives us eyes to see. He gives us eyes to see what? He gives us eyes to see the truth. We don't know the truth without the Holy Spirit living within us. He removes the evil and he takes up residence in our life and he begins to work on us. He shows us the truth. We begin to learn what his plan for our life is and how he wants us to live. And we begin to live by that plan and then he gives us a face. Nothing of great significance about the nose. If y'all think of something, let me know and I'll <laughs> do something. But he gives us a face. He gives us, he completes us. But one thing I know he does is he gives us a smile. Now granted, this smile's a little creepy, okay? <laughs> but the smile Jesus gives you is not. Because what is that smile? The smile is the joy of salvation. In the midst of all the trials of life, in the midst of the challenges, in the midst of the attacks of Satan, we have the joy of salvation because we know he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. So he's working on us and he's carving us. And then as all this is going on, he places his light inside of us. We talked about this a few weeks ago, the light of Christ, the flashlight illustration. He places his light inside of us and he gives us that light and calls us to do what? To shine his light to the world. And so now we're on full display 
for the whole world to see. It's the light of Christ in us, shining through us. The great work is Jesus dying on the cross, being raised from the dead so that I can live, so that I can know Him, and that my life's work can become His great work. He died so I could know Him and be set free. Now I live to show others that they can be set free. To know Christ and to grow in Him so that others, to help others know Christ and to grow in Him. Let your light shine before men so that they can see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. That's life's great work. You want to know what the great work is? That's it. Knowing Jesus, growing in Jesus, so that others can know Jesus and grow in Him. The ultimate and supreme purpose in life is to know Jesus and to make Him known. One of our seminary professors, Dr. Al Mohler, said this. He said, we cannot rest until the nations are made glad in the gospel. We cannot cease our labor labor until the work is done. Only God can complete the joy that we now taste and share. Every generation of Christians is to serve faithfully until Christ completes our joy. God's great work must become our life's work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your great work. Thank you for dying on the cross so that we could be forgiven and set free. We know that The only reason we have hope and meaning and purpose is because of the work that you've done for us and you're doing through us. Thank you for calling us to this great work of sharing your love, spreading the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would submit to you and commit to your work, that we would not rest until we see the nations, all of the nations, come to know you. All of those people groups who do not know you, Lord, I pray that we would not rest until they have heard the gospel. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today that doesn't know you, who has no clue what their purpose in life is, who who fits into that category of why am I here? Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today who doesn't know you, that today, during this time of commitment, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would come and allow me to share with them how to, to receive that gift of salvation. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we would first give up on ourselves, submit to you, allow you to come into our lives and to have complete control, and that we would live each day in submission, yet we would be willing to do our part, that we would be faithful as you are faithful, and and Father, experience the journey of seeing you complete your work in us. Lord, thank you for calling us to your work. Lord, there may be other decisions that need to be made, church membership, baptism, whatever it is. Father, I pray that right now we would respond to your word. For it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?